I'm Chris Stanzel with Empower Hour. And I'm Victoria Zamatella with Empower Hour. So today we're going to be having on uh, Dr. Stephen Mulkey, who is the former president of Unity College and current lecturer of, for climate change ecology at the University of Florida. So in the meantime, I just um, want to ask you, Victoria, have you noticed it's been a little hotter than usual? Oh, really? It's actually been the uh, hottest year on record for the past four years, hasn't it? Well, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived in Florida my whole life, and so it's, oh, it's always hot in August. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it's, it's always hard to, to compare, but I do feel like last summer didn't really end until about November. So I'll be interested to see how long the summer lasts this year. Mm-hmm. I suppose the bigger question is, do you think that hotter summers, shorter winters, that sort of thing, do you think you have noticed anybody pay attention to it more than they used to? Meaning, are we witnessing the change in the environment as something that is just natural or hereditary or whatever? Or do you think people are starting to make connections between you know, uh, environmental change and anthropomorphic uh, change, meaning we are the ones causing the environmental change? Or do you think most people are still stuck at, well, this is just the weather is changing year by year and no one's really paying attention? So from my own experiences in life, I think I, I am lucky enough to have had the privilege to always be around educated people. So in my experiences, even from high school, I'm very proud of the program that I graduated from. I'm proud of the people that were in that program with me. And we usually had the difficult conversation of climate change is in fact real and we are in fact the ones causing it. But at the same time, there are groups of people that I live with, especially my infamous family that I've brought up a couple times on the show, where at least two people in my family are active climate change deniers and they're both engineers that work in science for a living. So it's interesting because a lot of people acknowledge it, but at the same time, it seems to me that the people who need to acknowledge it are the only ones not acknowledging it right now. And that of course also isn't going to be the same experience for people across the board because of the privilege that I have had being raised in a higher income area with a magnet program that allowed for more experienced teachers and stuff like that. So my experience probably isn't the same experience as the rest of the world's. Well, yeah, and this is something that climate denial is not new. It's been going on since before either of us were born. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is, this is an old concept, but that does beg the question. Do you think, I mean, I suppose it's a morbid question, but do you think we are too late? A lot of the studies show that we are approaching the point of being too late. And I think by 2025, if we haven't made significant steps in fixing the damage that we've already done, we will have been too late, no matter what we do. It's kind of like being in in a battle. If you know you're going to lose the battle, should you still fight the battle? Or should you try to negotiate a surrender or a truce or something like that? I mean, I personally don't want to surrender the only planet we can live on at the moment. So I think this is a fight where we probably shouldn't, it shouldn't be an issue where we compromise on, to quote Adam Christensen from last week. 
it's, it's kind of an issue where you do have to stand your ground until you get what you need, especially in a moment where we're reaching the point of no return, you know? I think there's kind of two schools of thought when it comes to uh, the environment. The first one is kind of this, the, the naturalist movement. You know, we want to return the planet to a state or as close to a state of what it was before humans started messing it up in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and I feel like that's been the goal of most of the environmental movements across the world is we're trying to return the earth to a natural state, whatever that means. And then there's kind of the, the other school of thought of, well, we as a, uh, as a species have always invented our way out of ecological corners, meaning that whenever we've hit a, a wall, we have always invented our way out through our own ingenuity. So mm-hmm. even though it might look hopeless, uh, maybe Elon Musk will invent some uh, carbon capture technologies that's like far more advanced than we could have ever imagined. And just like that, you know, climate change will be solved in like all the carbon will be taken out of the atmosphere in, you know, a decade. Um, and as a species, we've always done this gamble of, well, double or nothing, double or nothing, double or nothing. And, you know, in your opinion, between those two schools of thought, do you think we are at a state where since, as you've said, you know, there's a good chance that we've all, it's too late to do the conventional stuff, which is just, well, we Lower just have carbon to, emissions. Yeah. Like- we have to change our behavior, changing our behavior in order to curb, uh, curtail imminent destruction. Yeah. So it's, so do you think we can invent our way out of this one? I think inventing our way out of this one might become necessary. And I think if given, if put in a pinch, we will find a way to do it. It's just the question of like, you do a project better when you're not rushing it at the last minute, you know? So I think if we weren't in a position where we're like actively trying to beat the clock right now, we would be able to come up with a solution that was not only like inexpensive, but it will fi- we would be able to find a solution that is everything we need. But if we continue to wait until the last minute, we're gonna find a solution that just gets the job done. One of those solutions, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, is uh, geoengineering, mm-hmm. which is the concept of uh, humans voluntarily fucking with the environment, fucking with the, the atmosphere in order to facilitate you know, certain environmental changes for the planet. But I think we're actually being joined by Dr. Malky right now. So I think we'll take a short break. And then when we come back, we will speak with Dr. Malky. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. For this Empower Minute, I thought I'd take the opportunity to thank you all for listening. With the end of summer semester now here, we will take a few week's break, but we'll be back with an exciting list of topics and guests in September. If you do enjoy the show, I encourage you to help empower us by going to empowerourradio.com and donating. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be instrumental in keeping the show running for the fall and will go to upgrading sound equipment and adding a few more bells and whistles for the podcast, just for starters. But if money's tight, All we ask is you share these episodes with your friends if you believe in the message and comment and like us on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on. From all of us here at the Empower Hour team, thanks for listening and we'll see you next September. We're back from the break and we are now joined by Dr. Stephen Malky. Um, Dr. Malky, thank you so much for being on today. My privilege. 
So uh, if you could just tell the audience a little bit about uh, what you do, what you teach, uh, kind of the subjects you focus most in. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I've had a, a long career, uh, although I try not to feel too old, but uh, I've been an ecologist uh, for 40 years. And um, I was a tropical forest ecologist specializing on carbon balance of tropical plants and tropical forests. Uh, for about 22 years. And then I realized that a lot of what I was doing was probably not particularly relevant to the problems that I was seeing with my own eyes, such as the dieback of the Amazonian uh, rainforest and a variety of other uh, forests that I had worked in uh, being decimated by human activities. And so I, uh, at that point, I started building programs. I directed the School of Natural Resources and Environment along with Steve Humphrey for a number of years. And then I moved to the University of Idaho, did something very similar, and then became a college president up in Maine. That was an interesting experience and uh, sort of uh, finalized my f the formal part of my career uh, by serving at the National Science Foundation as a program manager. And then I came back to Gainesville. I've always had a home here. And I had been tenured at the University of Florida before I left. And uh, so uh, I started looking at what was being taught on climate change and global change at the university. And I was not satisfied with what I saw. So uh, an opportunity for a lectureship uh, to become a, a beginning lecturer opened up. And I was more than delighted to apply for it. And I was thrilled that my colleagues in biology wanted me back. So the good news is being low dog on the totem pole again, I, I really don't have to deal with much administration, which is a huge relief. But I teach three courses on climate change. I teach. Um, and, and an IDS course, Interdisciplinary Studies course, it's part of the Quest 2 series. It's called Communities in Climate Change. And Christopher was in one of the pilot versions of that course. Uh, I also teach um, climate change and human wellness uh, at the 4,000 level. That's a course based on the peer-reviewed literature and it focuses a lot on public health and things like pandemics, emerging infectious disease, and other aspects that will be driven in part by climate change as our future unfolds. And I um, also teach uh, climate change biology, which is my flagship course. And that's a 3,000 level course. I do have, I'm willing to take about five more students in each of those uh, courses. Well, I, I'm only teaching two of them, uh, the IDS course and climate change biology. In addition, I also teach a course on global change ecology and sustainability um, within the sustainability studies program. And um, I love what I'm doing. I, uh, I'm really impressed with the students and how engaged they are at UF. Uh, you guys are, are really terrific. Um, and uh, I think one of the most important tasks I have is to raise your awareness of the challenges we're facing. So yeah, there's a definitely, I definitely appreciate you being on because I think you've got a lot of knowledge about a lot of different facets of climate change. Because I think a lot of people think climate change is just uh, carbon, something, something, air, something, something, ice. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of elements to it. Like I know you mentioned uh, wellness and um, with you know COVID-19, there's a lot of talk, renewed talk about how climate change will affect pandemics of the future and how it will increase the spread of disease. I um, mean, is that something you've seen as well? 
in your research? Well, yeah, uh, there are a number of examples of how climate change is already affecting the spread of human pathology. And, and one is the spread of Lyme disease and the spread of ticks into regions in the north where they didn't exist. Um, and there's also, and part of that has to do with the fact that it's warmer for longer and um, the ticks are not frozen out like they used to be. And so they're available for hosts uh, such as moose and deer, um, uh, other small mammals, uh, and then they get on humans and they make you very sick. And so that disease has been on the move as a function of warming. Uh, another disease that's that's growing dramatically is dengue. Um, I had dengue as a, a researcher in Panama, and uh, you won't die from it, but you will want to. <laughs> it's extremely painful. It's called bone crusher in the Spanish vernacular, and it, it's aptly named. Uh, but it is moving north. It's moving into the the um, lower temperate regions of the world. Other uh, diseases that are on the move are mosquito, dengue is mosquito-borne, by the way, and other diseases that are on the move are mosquito-borne diseases. Zika is not an accident. Um, it's a consequence of uh, really two factors, and all of these diseases that are, that are expanding are a consequence of two factors. One is human activities pushing into regions of um, natural habitat where we typically did not engage and that's exactly what happened with SARS-CoV-2 uh, which the disease is known as uh, COVID-19 uh, and the other is climate change itself which can sometimes cause diseases to dampen down but far more often it causes in emerging infectious diseases to get on the move and start to infect humans more so than they used to. One of the things we expect to see happen is Chagas disease, uh, which is a trypanosome that is vectored by a, a red aviated bug that looks a little bit like a cockroach. Uh, but the, that bug now exists throughout the southern tier of the United States. And there are infected people uh, with Chagas disease in the United States. So it's really just a matter of time until there's um, transmission within the United States. Currently, the, the people that are infected brought it with them from tropical countries. But it's, it's clearly a, uh, starting to become a major risk. Uh, trypanosome sets up shop in your 10th cranial nerve and shuts down your alimentary canal, your food tube, if you will and then scars over the right ventricle of the heart and you die. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, and it's incurable. It, it, uh, there's no really accepted Western medical cure for it. But that's a, that's a, a disease that's probably in our future. Uh, we need to be very much aware of those things as they transpire. So, um, um, and no Victoria, uh, and make sure you could just jump in whenever. I don't mean to talk. You haven't right even talked. Now, spoken I'm a fly yet. on a wall. Like I'm okay. enjoying this conversation. I'm learning so much right now. Like, well, you know, with the infectious diseases, the emerging infectious diseases, and the um, multiple extreme climate events that we will be hit with simultaneously, and the very high probability of multiple bread baskets failing in the future, we, we will be seeing uh, simultaneous and uh, concurrent uh, 
disasters that will affect Western society. You know, we think in the United States we're relatively immune to these big changes because we have a well-developed infrastructure and well-developed medical delivery system. I think COVID-19 has taught us a lesson that maybe we aren't as good as we thought we were, mm. to say the least. And in fact, uh, many other countries have responded much more appropriately than we have. But the, the thing that will happen in the future is these disease, diseases may have been manageable but in the face of multiple ongoing disasters, they will become much more difficult to manage. One of the things that we can expect is uh, waterborne diseases to increase most of our sewage systems and um, uh, sanitary treatment systems are ancient. They, they were built in the 50s, post-World War II. They don't have the capacity to deal with the enormous flooding that we're now seeing. Um, the floods in the upper Midwest this last year um, during 2019 were epic. Uh, they've never occurred before. Um, and accordingly, we, we can expect more of those. Uh, all of the climate models tell us that that's going to be on the rise. And as a consequence, uh, it would not at all be a surprise to see diseases that we thought we had licked, like um, cholera come back. Cholera is really a disease that's transmitted by impure water. Um, witness every time a major hurricane hits Haiti, uh, there, there has been a cholera outbreak in recent years. And um, the other thing that we can expect uh, that will amplify a lot of the public health aspects of this is that our uh, Infrastructure for emergency preparedness is woefully inadequate compared to what is coming our way. We are unprepared to deal with extended droughts or massive floods. Uh, we're unprepared to deal with hurricanes that are category five and perhaps even higher. We know that the big hurricanes that occur during um, the mid to late hurricane season in the, in the North Atlantic are now stronger, they're slower, uh, and they carry much more water and they move over extremely hot water. The only reason the current hurricane, Isaias, did not materialize as a major event was the fact that the wind shear was high. Um, that won't be the case always. A lot of these hurricanes spin up uh, as they approach shore extremely powerfully and uh, they're doing far more damage than they ever did before. And of course, this is all a consequence of a warming climate and sea surface temperatures that are uh, historic uh, in human time and probably classify as unprecedented in the last uh, three, three million years. Uh, the, the simple fact is uh, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is now higher than it's ever been in about 3 million years. And our best estimate that in the Pliocene, uh, the concentration was around 400 parts per million. Right now we're at 414. And it's, it's growing extremely fast. Now you'll hear a lot about how everything's been shut down and the emissions are lower because of COVID-19. And that's true, uh, that is true. However, 
all the indications are, and by the analyses that are being published in the peer-reviewed literature right now, is that when this thing passes, we're going to go gangbusters back to business as usual. And that's a disaster for your generation. Um, I, you know, right now, the, the other thing that's happened on the climate change front, which is big news, and like many pieces of good science, it's being utterly misinterpreted by the mass media. And that is, uh, there's this thing called climate sensitivity. And there are two forms of that. There's equilibrium climate sensitivity, which takes a few decades to achieve after a temperature change uh, or after a, uh, an increase in CO2. And uh, then there's transient climate sensitivity, which is much more rapid and sometimes higher than equilibrium climate sensitivity. So things sort of settle down after an initial spike. And what they've discovered is that the sensitivity of the climate system is higher than we thought it was at the low end. So we used to think that it would be around 1.4 degrees Celsius. And now there's no question that it's probably higher than 2 degrees Celsius. Make no mistake about it, 2 degrees Celsius will be a very unpleasant world to live in. Three degrees Celsius, which is built into all of the commitments from the Paris Agreement, about 3.2 degrees Celsius, will be utterly catastrophic. There's no other word for it. Uh, it won't end civilization, but it will have a major, let's just say it's really going to cramp our style. I mean, seriously. And I can't leave the topic which out without pointing out that the people that contributed the least to this, island nations in the Pacific, all of the global south essentially, uh, will be the recipient of the brunt of the impact, whereas the people like us <coughs> in the developed countries in the north will be able to have less of an impact because we have more resources to manage the situation. Uh, still, I, I think we're going to be very surprised at how inadequate our response will be. I could go on. Uh, I'll let well, you take it from here. Well, uh, oh, actually, Victoria, did you have something? Okay, so Dr. Mulkey, my name's Victoria, by the way. I'm sorry I haven't yes, introduced yes. myself glad, yet. Glad to meet uh, you. My first question was, uh, you're talking about how no matter what we do, our style will be cramped going forward. Yeah. At the, <laughs> at the very least, like let's say we had a complete change and tomorrow we went to drastically lower emissions. And obviously this isn't realistic, but actually no, scratch that. What is the most realistic least amount of change that society is going to see going okay. forward? Because um, I do think people don't really understand the reality of the situation. Like they'll say, oh, yeah. life will change, but they don't know exactly how. Well, they're not going to like how it will change, to say the least. Uh, more extreme weather, more drought, more floods, more heavy rainfall that will do damage, more, um, more extreme cold, ironically. Uh, there are many manifestations of climate disruption, which is the right term for it, actually, although most of those manifestations uh, have to do with warming. So right now we're on a trajectory to exceed three degrees Celsius. And by the end of the century, if we do nothing, we could be above four and a half. Now, 
Most experts that I've read say that if you hit four, that ends human civilization. It will not be possible. So let's just assume that that's not going to happen. Secondly, let's assume that uh, all of the major emitters in the world decide uh, tomorrow to throttle their fossil fuel emissions down to zero as fast as possible. When we achieve what is known as net zero, where the uptake from the green portion of the biosphere matches the output from human activities, or some, uh, there are many parts to the two sides of the equation, but in the end result is net zero uh, additions of carbon dioxide uh, to the atmosphere. If when we achieve that, it will still be uh, 25 to 35 years before we see a response in the climate system. And so uh, there's two take home messages there. One is that's not an excuse not to do something because if we don't do something, the outcome will be far worse. Uh, and secondly, we have to be realistic about how to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. There are a number of different ways to do that. Uh, right now, the politicians and a number of vested interests, including scientists at MIT and Harvard, are very invested in geoengineering. And we can talk about what that is. Uh, it's basically engineering the entire planet. And part of that is to draw down CO2. The other way to do it, and, and one that I think is far more reasonable, is to, and the two are not mutually exclusive, by the way, but I far prefer that we emphasize this other way, and that's uh, natural climate solutions that involve reforestation, afforestation, and stopping uh, deforestation, cold absolutely stop it can't go on and the reason is that old growth forests is still our best friend it it uh, because it represents an intact ecosystem it actually does sequester uh, more carbon than young rapidly growing trees would and once you cut down the old growth you destroy the ecosystem in the soil and all the other components of the ecosystem that use carbon so um, uh, the trees themselves also have, especially if they're large rainforest trees, have enormous amounts of carbon in their tissues. And when you cut them down, it's just a matter of time before that carbon is released to the atmosphere. Either you're burning or durable wood products that eventually decay. So we don't want that carbon now in the atmosphere. It has to stop. It simply must stop. It's an emergency that it stops. However, the Brazilian President Bolsonaro uh, disagrees and uh, deforestation of the Amazon, although it had been declining, has now resumed gangbusters. Uh, the rates of deforestation are about 600 to 700% higher than they were before he took office. Um, so the other thing that's happening that requires us to be active managers of the living systems of the planet is that many of them have already been tipped into becoming carbon sources rather than carbon sinks. For example, uh, you fly over the Amazon and it's endless. You fly in a jet for hours before you get to Sao Paulo. And uh, it seems like it's just immense and that it couldn't possibly 
be damaged that much. But if you get on the ground, what you find is that there's enormous damage underway and that damage is of two forms. One is active human activities that cut down the trees, burn them, or to turn them into soybeans or pasture. Well, a lot of that is happening in the southeastern part of the Amazon, but uh, that's not a part of the Amazon that we wish to dismiss. It's a very, very important carbon sink when it's intact. The other thing that's happened is climate change itself has changed the drought cycle and the cutting of the trees has changed the drought cycle. So uh, think about it for a minute. Where does most of the rainfall come uh, over an immense forest like that? It's transpired by the trees themselves. It doesn't come from the ocean. It, uh, about 73% of it actually comes from the trees. And so you cut them down, you remove that source of rainfall. And uh, the warming of the atmosphere itself has, has contributed to this very significantly, causing 100 and 500 year droughts to return on a cycle of about three to five years. When I was working, I saw the begin working down there, I saw the beginnings of this. Uh, it is extremely alarming because what this means is that this immense storehouse of carbon uh, does not have a chance, uh, depending on where the drought occurs in the Amazon, to recover from the drought and regain positive carbon balance before the next one hits. That means that the Amazon itself, excuse me, is becoming like a savanna. And uh, so I predict that the, the entire basin, if you were to, uh, the entire forest, forested basin, if you were to, to uh, ask when will it actually become a carbon source rather than a carbon sink, I, I think we're within five years of that. When will it become a savanna? Uh, I think uh, from the central region to the south will become savannaized. Um, with by 2035 to 2040. So we're gonna see that entire region transform and it's underway now. Uh, we absolutely have to manage this. We can manage any ecosystem for maximizing carbon uptake and storage. And the boreal forest needs the same attention. Grasslands need the same attention. We need legions of eco-managers that are using solid science to maintain the carbon uptake of the living portion of the planet and to keep it from going into a, becoming a carbon source. Uh, most of the experts, in fact, I think it's all now, who work in the permafrost uh, have concluded that the, um, the tundra is now a carbon source. That's extremely bad news because it's a huge piece of real estate and the amount of carbon stored uh, in those frozen soils is um, uh, a factor of, I believe, four, maybe two more than all the carbon in the atmosphere combined. So the fact that it's now emitting to the atmosphere is, uh, well, it's more than alarming. It's, you know, if somebody calls you an alarmist when you say climate change is, is going to be bad, uh, tell them no, uh, that you're alarmed, but you're not an alarmist, and the alarm is fully credible uh, science. It's based on science. And the best, the best scientists that I read on a daily basis are all 
they've been sounding the alarm for 30 years and uh, you know the fossil fuel industry had declared war on that science uh, and um, there was a time when uh, both the Republicans and Democrats realized we had to do something and then something changed and uh, the GOP is now the single uh, longest running national party in the world to deny the existence of climate change and to actively work against uh, addressing it. I'm sorry, could you just, could you repeat that one more time so that that sinks in with some of our listeners? Yeah, the Republican Party of the United States is the single uh, large national uh, political party in the world that has denied climate change for the longest and actively worked against remediation of it. Yeah, to kind of build on that, I think the inclination of a, a lot of people, like kind of hearing everything you just said, you know, some really morbid stuff, some really daunting challenges ahead, I think there's a notion, and I'm not excluding myself either, to kind of think, well, humanity has invented itself out of a lot of ecological corners. And we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the show as well. Of, yeah. You know, we have invented, we've always doubled, doubled down, doubled down, doubled down, and have always won the betting pool in the end. And I think a lot of people I talk to acknowledge climate change is real, but they say, well, Elon Musk will fix it. Some amazing technology will come along and fix it that we can't even imagine. <laughs> Yippee. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen the movie Dirty Harry? No, I haven't. Well, there's a, there's a time when uh, the perp can't figure out how many uh, bullets are still left in Harry's gun. And he's thinking about whether or not to draw on Harry. And, and Harry says, how lucky do you feel? So that's, <laughs> that's my response to, to the idea that Musk or hype big tech tech is going to save us. How lucky do you feel? There are many things that are problematic about that perspective. Uh, let me just mention a few. Um, we do need to uh, implement massive CO2 drawdown around the country, around the world. That has to happen around the world. Uh, and there are a number of technologies that um, may have the ability to do that for us, but they are not well developed yet. Uh, the technology that we have for removing this rare gas, believe it or not, it's ironic that it's causing so much problem. It exists at 0.04% of the atmosphere. It qualifies as a rare gas. And yet every molecule of carbon in your body came from that. So get a sense of how interesting mother nature really is. And so this rare gas is causing us big problems right now. Uh, and uh, the technique for removing this rare gas relies on chemical fixation in amines or some other chemical means. Now there may be uh, electrostatic ways of removing it and some of those are being explored. Uh, I'm not familiar with them. But the chemical means of removing it uh, the chemicals can be regenerated, uh, I believe, for a limited number of cycles. But then once you get it and you degas the chemicals, you've got to do something with the CO2. So where do you put the CO2 so that it doesn't go back in the atmosphere? Well, there's really two options. One is to pump it into geological strata. And some of these are available because 
uh, ironically, the fossil fuel industry has created them for us. And <laughs> the other is to uh, compress it, liquefy it, put it on big boats, ship it out in the middle of the ocean, drop it deep into the ocean where it will form a CO2 lake and become somebody else's problem in about a thousand to two thousand years. Uh, okay, well, great. Uh, the other problem is, of course, leakage from the geological strata. Uh, most of those will leak to some degree. So what do we do with the CO2? Well, the fossil fuel industry has a great idea. We'll take that CO2 and we'll turn it into a liquid transportation fuel, kind of like gasoline. And then we'll re-emit the CO2 into the atmosphere. We'll fix it again, turn it into gasoline. We won't have to change our transportation structure very much at all. And gee, the fossil fuel industry will continue to make big bucks and we will continue to be reliant on it with all of the social costs of the fossil fuel industry, like um, mining accidents, like pipeline accidents, etc. all of those pollution. Uh, still will remain non-CO2 pollution because, in theory, the cycle that the fossil fuel industry proposes will be net zero. Uh, there's a bridge in New York that I'd recommend you look into buying if you believe that. Uh, I personally don't. And so uh, the bottom line is uh, we've got to do something with the CO2. The other big problem is building the instrumentation, the devices to suck this rare gas out of the atmosphere and fix it in amines uh, will have to be scaled. It'll have to be scaled to a planetary level in time to make a difference. I would submit, and I'm my, the data I've seen say that that's simply impossible uh, because it's big iron. Uh, it's going to use a tremendous amount of resources. And a lot of those resources will be turned into those big fans and devices to suck this rare gas out of the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. Okay, <laughs> right. <clears throat> it's called a, it's a phenomenon called additionality. So if you think you think you're getting net zero from uh, corn being turned into ethanol, think again. The corn has to be put in trucks, it has to be harvested, it has to be collected, it has to be put on barges, floated down the Mississippi, has to be put on a train, all of those things are burning fossil fuels. And so the ethanol uh, industry, although it got started uh, as this false promise of uh, being a tool against climate change, it is now a commodity in and of itself, exchanged, uh, traded on the stock market and uh, it will be almost impossible to get rid of it because of all the vested interests in it. But it's, it's bogus. It simply doesn't work. So the additionality on ethanol is huge. The additionality on building these devices will be massive and getting them deployed around the world would be an effort that would be very similar to um, uh, World War II. I mean, so it could be done maybe. In, in a similar vein, Chris was talking about how we, you have said we can't rely on those like Elon Musk and big tech to come up with a solution for us. At the same time, there are large companies and organizations lobbying for, oh, get rid of your plastic straws, get rid of your single use plastics and other things like that. Is that really helping? It's bullshit. 
uh, and it's a distraction. Absolutely. Yeah, so it it won't it won't hurt you to do that. Uh, like I I do buy an offset if I have to get on a jet airplane, and mm -hmm. I really question whether or not I have to ever these days. It's just uh, there's no reason for a scientific conference to bring 30,000 people together in San Francisco and put them in the Moscone Center. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's just fucking read. I'm sorry. Excuse my French. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty absurd if you think about it. And uh, many of the, the, that's the American Geophysical Union, which is the lead scientific organization studying climate change. Oh, the irony. <laughs> so, um, I, I think that those things are going to change uh, significantly. But no, I, I think if you want to do those things, and I do many of those things, I drive a Prius. Uh, in fact, I was going to essentially warehouse the Prius and ride an electric bike to and from my office at UF, uh, which is as good as any car. And uh, the idea is to, in Florida heat, not to turn into a sweat ball by the time you get to your office. So, <laughs> otherwise, I'd ride one of my other bikes. But so, uh, those things are good. Okay. Are they really going to be enough to make a difference? Absolutely not. Uh, and if you feel any guilt because of those things, it's misplaced guilt. The guilt that should be felt is by our policymakers and our leadership and by the corporations because they're responsible. And so we need large scale systemic change. The fossil fuel industry needs to be outlawed, outlawed. They need to be permitted, per, uh, prevented from ever exploring or producing any more fossil fuels beyond a date certain. So it can't be abrupt or it would wreck society, but we could do it very soon. And uh, I think that needs to happen. The other thing that, that um, people need to realize, and I really want to emphasize this, most of us have an innate sense of morality. You know, you don't, it's not, it's not good to walk across the street and kill your neighbor. Uh, we generally frown on such things. Such things are immoral. Uh, cheating on a spouse, we consider that to be immoral in some sense. Most people would agree. Uh, I believe our innate sense of morality is a, a derived evolutionary characteristic uh, based on our obligate sociality as an obligately social primate. Now, that aside, what is the morality of climate change? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Where did most of the CO2 in the atmosphere come from? Up until about the year 2000, well more than 50% of it came from the United States. Let that sink in for a minute. Who has the moral obligation to act? And who isn't acting at all? Presently, 25% of the CO2 in the atmosphere is from us. And uh, the nearest competitor is China at 13%. And uh, the rest of more than 190 nations make up the rest, including the European Union. So the point here is we have utterly abdicated our moral responsibility to address climate change when most of it is in the air originally from us. The other point for people to realize is it doesn't matter how much emissions get cut. What matters is the standing burden of CO2 and methane 
in the atmosphere at any given point in time. That's what drives the physics. So it, it's wonderful to say, oh, we're cutting CO2 very hard, very fast, and good things are happening. Yeah, you got to do that. But to think that that's going to cause climate change to Just go, go away, away and to cool is a naive. It's because it's the amount of CO2 that's up there. And right now we're at about 414 parts per million. The last number I saw a couple of days ago. And um, it's been three and a half million years since we were at a number even approximating that. Sea level was much higher. The earth was much warmer. So kind of touching on, you talk about climate morality. Um, do you think that with, with, with the United States, at least in my opinion, I think a big problem is no one, no one individual wants to take responsibility. You know, you talk to most Americans, they don't, they say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't cause, you know, 25% of all the carbon emissions. That was the corporation. When you go to the corporation, the corporation says, well, I didn't do it. The consumer needed the product. So I just provided a product in the market. And, et cetera, et cetera. and no one wants to accept responsibility. No one wants to accept the blame. Everyone wants to remain blameless. We have and a mechanism to address that. It's called government. <laughs> That's all I have to say about it. Uh, our government is supposed to assume that responsibility for governing and for the public well-being. And uh, right now, we are effectively living in what qualifies as a failed state because we can no longer govern. We don't even have the ability to come to come to an agreement on a desperately needed relief package for all the people that just ran out of their unemployment. Mm -hmm. So So you kind of, I think you kind of did by being on here and talking about everything you're talking about, I think you're kind of disproving this stereotype, but do you think the reason why not just America, but governments all over the world, um, are not acting or taking this as seriously is because a lot of them are older people that will not live to see the ecological destruction of the planet. In a word, yes. Uh, I think uh, older people tend to take this far less seriously than younger people. And here, of course, is an issue of intergenerational responsibility and morality. Uh, the baby boomers have um, not just let you down, uh, our actions, I think, are have been criminal, uh, and I would I think that's the right word for it. And especially the leadership from my generation, uh, most of the, you know, the two presidential candidates are in their late seventies. Um, they were product of the uh, incredible largesse following World War II. Um, I was born into a world by the time I was in high school where I believed that anything was possible if I had the courage and intelligence to do it. And uh, I had a very optimistic, positive outlook. Becoming an ecologist fixed that. <laughs> However, uh, you know, nonetheless, you guys don't have any optimism on your part uh, for that sort of thing is wholly unrealistic. You will have a much different uh, young adulthood than I did, and it will be much harder. It's just a, it really, there's really no way around that. You will be faced with challenges that if we don't get it right, the consequences for you uh, will be terrifying. So in that same vein, uh, 
throughout the 20th century, the U.S. had a history, and I'm sure you know this, of going into specifically Latin America and taking over industry, taking over agriculture for the sake of profiteering and for the sake of just making money for the U.S. Um, and as a result, there are many Latin American countries today that are very suspicious of the actions of the U.S. today. And at the same time, if it's the U.S.'s responsibility to be spearheading this change after this change uh, in terms of reducing carbon emissions, but also removing carbon in this atmosphere already, um, after the U.S. figures out its own situation and we are on the same page, assuming that ever happens, do you think the U.S. will have a responsibility to go into other countries like we did in the 20th century and kind of force these other countries to fix their climate policies? Or do you think this is a every country has to figure out their own solution? There needs to be an international uh, consensus on what needs to be done. How that consensus get applies is applied to the global south and the developing countries should be very different than how it applies to the industrialized countries. The industrialized countries have a unique responsibility to quit burning carbon now as fast as possible. Uh, the developing countries uh, need to leapfrog the mistakes that the rest of the world has made. And so they've, they've got to figure out, um, we need to assist them in moving quickly into renewables. Uh, I sincerely believe it's entire, entirely possible to power the entire planet on wind, water, and solar by 2050 if we choose to. And so uh, we can assist them. We can help them with this transition. Um, I think the, the days of US imperialism are over. I don't think any country developing or developed will tolerate it, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, the record track record speaks for itself. I lived and worked in Panama for many years, and um, I was witness to U.S. imperialism with my own eyes, and how the reporting of that on CNN in particular at the time was very different than the reality on the ground. Um, so um, were, were huge mistakes made for political reasons uh, by the United States in Latin America? Without, without doubt, no question about it. Um, we do have an obligation uh, to do everything we can to help uh, the developing countries of the world. And the European Union does also, so does China. Um, <clears throat> and to some extent, so does India, uh, to help those countries uh, develop uh, their power structure on renewables and to uh, implement the um, ability to respond to the changes that climate change will bring, is bringing. So if you talk to people in Kenya right now, one of the things they will tell you is that their weather patterns are completely different than they've ever been. Historical transformation, unprecedented. Uh, 
not just in human terms, but in terms of uh, the longevity of many of the peoples and tribes that have lived there. And they have a very good understanding of what their climate is supposed to be like. And it's not that way anymore. It's affecting, um, it's affecting waterborne disease. It's affecting use of the forest. Uh, again, humans are being exposed to diseases that they normally would not have been exposed to. Um, and so these are the kind of changes that we need to do what we can to help with. Now, the United Nations is the vehicle for that. It was set up for that, those purposes. And it's non-functional right now. It, um, the thing that impresses me is that with the Paris Agreement taking us to just north of three degrees Celsius, if everybody does what they said and the U.S. withdrew, the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, which is the governing body of the IPCC, does not have a plan to save civilization. No plan exists. That's right. It's kind of like uh, the, the teachers, uh, secondary and middle school teachers and grade school teachers uh, in Gainesville. There is no plan from the school board to deal with COVID-19. No plan exists, and it, it, any meaningful plan. P.K. Young is in the process of signing an agreement with the University of Florida. That's a step in the right direction, but I think in, I think they need far more protection than they're going to get. So our, our governments are failing us for political reasons all around the world, uh, but especially in the United States. The single most important thing that anybody can do to address these uh, huge issues is vote. Even if even if you're not inspired by what you're voting for, remember what you're voting against. So to kind of um, shift gears just a little bit here, I think just to kind of go backwards, I suppose, to, to kind of establish the stakes, because do you think that we can ever go back to the climate we had you know, through through most of modern human history. Is there ever a way to reverse the damage that has been done? Or do you think no matter what we do, no matter how proactive we are from this point on, there is no going back? Not in your generation, no. Uh, or probably your children's generation. But ultimately, I think we can get there much faster than if we relied on the natural processes to remove the CO2 from the air. That would take, uh, for significant changes to occur, it'll take between 300 uh, to 1,000 years. And so we're talking about millennial scale change. Uh, there are a number of different schemes to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We've talked about some of them. Accordingly, um, they would uh, affect that change much faster, but I don't think you'll, you'll see it in your lifetime. Uh, remember that what we're talking about is climate disruption, and that has already led to biosphere disruption on a massive scale. The oceans are way different than they were 15, 20 years ago. I mean, not just a little different. I mean, uh, large scale, huge changes have occurred. We have uh, tropical fish that are uh, moving up the Atlantic coast. 
that were never seen before. We have uh, northern fish that have actually moved north of the Arctic Circle where they never occurred before. Um, the, the changes go on and on. The other thing to be aware of is that it's not just the atmosphere and the land that's heating up, it's the oceans. The oceans are hotter than they've ever been in recorded history and we're experiencing increasing with increasing frequency marine heat waves and the marine heat waves are doing a lot of damage. They're trashing the coral. Um, by the time we hit 2050, if we don't deal with things aggressively, uh, we'll probably lose all the coral. Right now, we will lose most of the coral, even if we deal with things aggressively. So maybe you don't care about coral. Maybe you don't care about those reefs, but they're uh, extremely productive both ecologically and in terms of regional economies that rely on those reefs for fish, tourism, um, food, many other things. So uh, once again, the stakes are enormous. They, you, I can't emphasize enough. So these things have, have reached uh, more or less tipping points where they have transitioned into a new regime, the tundra, the rainforest is in the process. Many parts of the world ocean, world's ocean uh, are in that process right now. We are uh, virtually certain that we're going to lose uh, eventually. It won't happen tomorrow, but it could happen abruptly uh, down the road. We're going to lose much of the Western Antarctic ice shelf. It will fall into the ocean. And when it does, uh, sea levels could rise precipitously. I'm not talking about uh, overnight, uh, but nonetheless, very fast, far faster than, than we're anticipating right now. So the other, um, the other situation is Greenland. Greenland's not going to disappear overnight, no matter how hot it gets, because there's a boatload of ice up there. It'll take a long time to melt. But right now, it's rapidly freshening the North Atlantic uh, there's indication that the North Atlantic currents have been transformed by this. And this, this is going to influence weather patterns uh, all over the world because England is a livable place right now because of the warm water that finds its way over there from the North Atlantic. And it looks like that entire uh, conveyor belt system is now in the process of transforming. So even if we get uh, the temperature of the planet back where it was in um, 1880, 1885, uh, which is generally considered to be the start of the industrial era. Even if we get the temperature back there, the ecosystems will not rebound overnight. And they need tending. They need active management. And that's the part that nobody's talking about. Nobody realizes that we have to actively manage the living portion of the planet. So um, I hope I haven't depressed you too much. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I think it's it's true. I mean, it's the reality of things. Mm -hmm. um, but people should and, be upset. <laughs> yeah, but you they know that's alarmed very. Yeah, and that that's that's actually a good segue into what I wanted to ask you next, and that is, hearing a lot of these information, I think people people who don't either you know just shut it out completely and just say all everything you just said is bullshit, assuming they don't do that. 
um, and they do believe you and they do believe the, the reality that the science is telling us, I think, you know, something like climbing anxiety is something that, you know, I know is very common amongst, you know, college students who study this. I felt it. I think a lot of people who are in the scene feel it. How do you suggest and how have you personally dealt with the anxiety involved with uh, a collapsing climate, the uncertainty that comes with that, and I guess the hopelessness um, that, that comes from knowing that you know, a lot of things are going to be damaged no matter what we do, even if it's positive, and most likely things will probably be... Oh, you're right. Yeah. We, things will be damaged no matter what we do. We will lose species, mo- uh, locally, regionally, and sadly, globally. Extinctions will occur. So that's a given. The question is, how big will it be? And uh, now you can you can look at the situation and say, oh, we'll never get back to where we were and give up. What you The way to look at it is we don't want to go where we're going. That's the most important response at this point in time. Uh, and there's enormous opportunity in this. There's enormous opportunity for new careers. There's enormous opportunity for meaningful work. Uh, the one thing that I see in your generation that was, I think, more or less absent in mine was the belief that uh, being of service is a good thing, that actually doing something for uh, other living things, humans included, is actually a good thing. Uh, my generation was interested in getting an MBA <laughs> and, and working on Wall Street, you know, uh, except for a handful of us that were drawn to ecology and wildlife, wildlife biology and conservation for more or less the right reasons. But we were just massively naive about what we were up against. So yeah, you guys, you guys can get depressed, but action is the antidote to despair. You've got to get active. You've got to get moving. Uh, there's an old country song uh, called "Willing." Uh, beat by the rain, hammered by the sleet, broken and dirty, uh, but I'm still willing. So you've got to you got to pick yourself up, and you got to get willing. And you got to take the actions. The Sunrise Movement is starting to look pretty legitimate to me. I'm usually cautious about new movements, so you might want to look into that. The other thing is uh, 350.org. Uh, most of the activists right now have changed their strategy from um, partly because of COVID-19, from mass marches to uh, online act active activism uh, various things that you can do and again the most important thing you can do is vote and especially in the united states because we're about to lose it all we're about to lose the representative democracy that we've had uh, it's been on a knife's edge for a while now and uh, it's really really in danger so you know I, I just feel like that that we can't afford despair it's uh, it's we we can't afford to waste the time being being hopeless. Um, so you know if you're going to sit around and and feel like it truly is hopeless, well then that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If on the other hand you get off your dead ass and take action, 
it uh, it really uh, we stand a chance for massive the massive change that's required. You'll live in a very different world. It won't be the world that that I was uh, anticipating as a young adult, not by a long shot. But it will be far far better than the world that will exist if we don't do anything, if we don't take the actions. And action is the antidote to despair. That's how I treat my own despair. And believe me, uh, I experience despair fairly frequently. But the way I deal with it was I get active and I do something. That's why I came back to teach. Uh, I could be uh, retired, riding my bike, getting fat and lazy, you know. But uh, uh, it's, I, I couldn't live with myself if I did that, you know, because there's so much that needs to be done. And you guys, you guys are in a position to make a huge difference. You're at the flagship university of the state of Florida. The state of Florida will be undergoing massive changes in the next 20 years. Uh, you can choose to make your contribution here where the, the political obstacles are very big, or you can go someplace where the political obstacles are lower, uh, say Oregon or Washington, uh, Northern California and uh, contribute in a different way. But you're going to have to make that choice. Um, I think Florida is worth the investment. Um, there are 10 million people that are in grave danger in Florida. And uh, most of those live on the coast. Every community should have a climate emergency plan. And believe it or not, top of the list is not cutting emissions. It should be very high on the list. But top of the list should be food security and water security and public health. And most communities don't realize that. They think, oh, well, we'll get a climate emergency plan, we'll cut emissions, and we'll change our energy sources, and it's all going to be good. No, you're still going to have to face the exigencies, the, the critical events that come with climate change, uh, failed crops, uh, inundations, drought. Uh, uh, massive storms uh, of historic proportions. Um, the power of, of hurricanes in North America has, of, I'm sorry, of tornadoes in North America has increased on average about 0.5% um, per, per year. And so tornadoes are getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and witness some of the damage they're doing. The other thing is that Tornado Alley, that region of the Midwest that typically hosted the most tornadoes, has moved south and east by about 500 miles. So um, I think we'll kind of, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're a little over an hour now, actually, which is good. I, I wish we could just go on for hours and hours and hours and hours. And no that, this was like a perfect little bow to wrap up that conversation. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> I think we'll kind of start winding down. So if there's anything specific you wanted to talk about, let us know. Like I, we've kind of been dictating the conversation the whole time. So if there's any. No, just, uh, just take care of yourself and each other. Uh, I, I'm a true believer in the power of community and uh, mass media and uh, living in boxes on wheels and living in boxes where we don't come in contact with one another to have to make community decisions. Uh, that has sapped our um, our strength. And so find out who your neighbor is if you don't know. Get to know them, uh, regardless of their political perspective. 
you know, get out and walk your neighborhood and meet people. Find out who your elected uh, representative is on the city council or the uh, county commission, the city commission or the county commission. Write Mayor Poe, write him a letter telling him you're worried about something. Florida, right, uh, Gainesville right now is undergoing, of course, massive development because of the needs of the University of Florida. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's time to reevaluate all of that. Uh, we really need to think again about how that gets done. You should never build another building, no matter what, that isn't carbon neutral, period. And there's no reason to build a building that isn't carbon neutral. Um, we've absolutely got to electrify the transportation fleet. We've got to build mass transportation. Do you realize there's a conservative funded organization in the suburb of Illinois that for the Illinois for the last uh, 20 to 30 years, I think it's closer to 30 years, that exists for the purpose of, of fighting mass transportation, stopping it. And of course, it's funded by the fossil fuel industry. Anyway, thanks a lot. I, I should quit. Yeah. Well, I'll just, I'll just say this. Um, so I, I do want to thank you again for, for being on. I think it's been Absolutely. a great honor. And um, where, where can the good people, people find you? on social media? Oh, uh, I have a blog called Environmental Century. That's one word, dot net, environmentalcentury.net. And um, I'm, I don't really contribute to it every day, but uh, when I have time, I'll write a piece. Uh, um, you can also find me on Medium, medium.com. Uh, I, uh, many of my pieces are, are technically behind a paywall. If you want to see them, uh, just send me an email. You can contact me in my professional email, smulkey at ufl.edu. And uh, other than that, uh, I'm in the classroom and online. So, like I thank said, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank it's you. My privilege. Take care, guys. Yeah, take thank care. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye bye. 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 Excellent interview. So I think uh, we'll go ahead and call it a day. So. Um, I'm Chris with Empower Hour. I'm Victoria with Empower Hour. Don't we'll forget see. to fucking vote. <laughs> yeah, don't forget to vote. Primary's coming up, at least in Florida. I don't know about other places, but at least in Florida. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll see you next time. Stay safe. Stay safe, everyone. Everything's Thoughts, questions, concerns. You want to tell us how much you like the show? You know where to go. Email us at host at empowerourradio.com. Everything is cool.